The precise pitch of a music note is measured by the number of cycles of vibration per second, and it's measured in hertz. I have a hard time saying that. Hertz. As the hertz go down, the pitch of a note will be lower. As the hertz is higher, it's going to be higher. And so years ago, they would use tuning forks. It looks like a uh, maybe a U-shaped magnet with a stem down on the bottom of it. Some of you know what a tuning fork is, hopefully all of you. And so those tuning forks would be carved and shaped to the right number of vibrations to give that specific pitch so that people could tune their instruments to it. In a world music conference in 1885 in Austria, it was determined that the note A should be measured to 440 hertz. That's 440 vibrations per second. And so it has a specific pitch. And they decided it should be the standard note by which all other notes were tuned. And this was necessary in order to establish a standard throughout the world for the orchestras and all the instruments, the musicians, the organs to be tuned by, the pianos that were invented in the 7th century, and the harpsichords that preceded the piano, and all of those different things, they, they needed a standard to go by because you could go from one region of the world to another region of the world, and they might tune to 425 hertz instead of 440. And so that, for the most part, became the standard in Austria in 1885. Now that being said, when a former music student came to visit his old music teacher one day, he said, what good news do you have these days? The old teacher was silent and he stood up and he walked over to where he had a tuning fork and it was A. And he picked up the A and he hit it with a rubber hammer and it began to resound in the room, that that note A. And he said, this is A. He said it vibrates at 440 hertz. He said it was A yesterday. It's A today, and it will still be the same A tomorrow. The soprano who sings upstairs sings a little off-key sometimes. The old piano downstairs still needs to be retuned. He struck it one more time, and he said, But this, my friend, is always going to be A, and it's always going to be the right standard. The gospel of Jesus Christ is called the good news. The gospel is based on promises of God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And to believe on Him is to receive the promise of eternal life. And that, my friends, is good news for today. I hope that you've put your faith and trust in Jesus. But you know what? Many believers even, I'm talking about Christians, people who've been Christians for years sometimes ask this question. But Brother Crispin, how can I be sure? How can I be sure when I die, I'm going to go to heaven as the Bible tells me? I I need a guarantee. What guarantee do we have? I mean, can anybody really know? Well, more than 4,000 years ago, a man named Abram in the Bible asked God the same question. How can I know for sure? God responded to Abram with a promise. And I want us to read about that beginning in chapter 15, verse 1 this morning. The Bible says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, 
You've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir. Talking about the servant, Eliezer. But one will come from your own body, shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside, and he said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? God had blessed Abram with a lot of wealth. Abram had a lot of substance. He blessed him with protection. If you were to read through chapter 14, you would see that he went into battle to rescue his nephew Lot. You know, his nephew Lot kind of made his life in a a horrible city called Sodom. And he was uh, part of the community there. He was even a decision maker who sat at the city gate there. So he was highly involved in Sodom. Well, a coalition of kings and armies came against Sodom. And they overtook Sodom and, and with them they took Lot. And so he gets wind of this and finds out about it. And so he has to get an army of men together. It's 318. That's all he has. Abram gets his army together. He goes to rescue Lot and he defeats this coalition of armies. And what a great victory it was. In fact, the king of Sodom comes and greets him in the valley. This pagan king of this pagan city, uh, such a city of, of filth. He even comes and greets Abram because... He's had such a great victory in battle. And even Abram says, look, I don't want anything that you have. You know, I know we've got all the spoils. Whatever belonged to Sodom and you, you've got all that. I just need what was ours, you know, and and took that. He didn't want anything from, from the king of Sodom. He goes to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was one, we don't know where he came from. He has no beginning, the Bible says in the New Testament. He has no ending. He is, for us, a type of the Lord Jesus, described in the Old Testament, so we know what Jesus was like in the New Testament. And he tithes, he's, a, he's an earthly priest, and he, Abram tithes a tenth of all that he has to Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses him all the more with the blessing of God, and Abram goes his way. So Abram had a lot of protection from God, and he had wealth that God had provided him, but he had a problem. Abram had a big problem. Now, you and I might not look at that and think that was a huge problem that he has, but he's got a huge problem. He has no children to inherit that blessing. In the Old Testament, the signs of God's blessings were often material rather than in the New Testament where we read that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It was often material. If God's blessing was on someone, He gave them wealth. He gave them substance. They had cattle. They had land. They had livestock. His blessing rested upon them often. Not always, but often in that way. Primarily, he would have a son. And sometimes numerous sons. God's blessing was seen as you having a lot of sons. And so Abram had no son. So he didn't feel all that blessed. He felt victorious in battle, but he felt defeated in life. His wife Sarah couldn't have children. And so now they're up in life. They're, they're in an older age. He has no son. Sarah can't bear him any children. And by the way, the way it's spelled here in this uh, chapter, S-A-S-A-R-A-I, Sarah, it means 
contentious. She was a little bit contentious about it. She was not a happy camper that she couldn't provide him with a son. It was customary that if Abram were to die without a son, his entire estate would go to a head servant in his household. Well, that head servant was Eliezer of Damascus. And he probably had a great care and concern and love for Eliezer, but he wasn't of him. It wasn't from his own body. He wasn't of his own blood. And no man wanted to pass down his entire estate to to one who didn't belong to him, who was just his servant. So that wasn't sitting real well with Abram. He didn't want his lineage to end like this without having a son to carry on his name. What blessing is there in having success without having a successor? So he wanted a successor. He wanted a son. You know, we all face problems in life that we can do nothing about. Problems that we don't have an answer for. We try to come up with an answer. We try to make things work. We try to change the situation. Sometimes we can't do it. Like Abram, we've got to learn to trust God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We have to turn to God. Abram has turned to God and he's looking to him to fix his problem. God, I've got a problem. I have no son. So I want you to see how God responds to Abram. He says, Abram, I'm going to give you your own son. I've promised you before I would bless you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Now Abram's thinking, oh yeah, right. (laughs) I have no son. You're going to make me the father of many nations? How about just one? How about just make me the father of a family? (laughs) You know, can you hear Abram maybe praying? He said, look up, Abram. Look into the sky. See the stars that are in the sky tonight? If you could count them all, just think of this. You're going to have more descendants than all the stars that you see in the sky tonight. I'm going to give that to you. NASA alleges that on a clear, dark night, without the moon shining down and blocking your vision, if you had the time to do it, with the naked eye, you could count about 3,000 stars just in, in where you're at in your hemisphere. If you were to go and change places back and forth, it would take three months for you to go to the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere, and count all the stars that you can see from both of those locations. And if you would stay at it and be able to account for each one, you should see with the naked eye up to 9,000 stars. So let's just say right where he is on that night, as he looked up in the sky, it was just a normal night. It was a dark night, though. It was a clear night. It was just a normal night. Let's just say he could see, if he were to count, 3,000 stars. Just 3,000. You know, using the Hubble telescope, the estimated number of stars in the universe tallies out to 10 to the 34th power. That's a 1 with 24 zeros behind it. That's 1 septillion. That's those that we know about if we take the figure on what we have in our own galaxy alone. And so let's say on that clear night he sees 3,000 stars when he looks up there. He's got a great promise from God. If God just gave him a 1,000 descendants, wow, that would be something. But he says, no, if you see these stars, your descendants will outnumber these. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. He said, I'm also going to give you a lot of land around here. He has established the boundaries of the land that he has promised to Abraham. Verse 6 says, he believed in God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now many believe this wasn't a matter of saving faith. When we say he believed in God, he's believing in God for the promise. 
Because in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, the Bible tells us, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed God. By going to a place, God promised to show him that he would receive it for an inheritance. Says he went out not knowing where he was going. That he did that as a step of faith in God. And so many would say this was not saving faith. This was an act of his faith at that moment in the promise that God was making him. So this was not him believing and being saved. He had already been saved, having stepped out on faith with God years before. What he lacked was not saving faith, in other words. What he lacked was assurance of his faith. And maybe you can identify with that right now. I believe a lot of people can. I know there was a time in my life where I identified with that greatly. Lord, how can I be sure? I had people telling me, you can't know for certain. I had people telling me in the church that I had joined, you can know for certain. I was taught to believe you could lose your salvation, and that you can never be totally sure. And then I was being taught at that point in my 20s, no, you can know for sure. The Word of God declares it for sure. Of the 20-somethings, I might have been more confused than those who just stayed out of church. I wanted to know the truth, and I had to toil with that, and I toiled with that for several years. So maybe you can identify with that right now, that having the assurance of faith. You trusted Jesus by faith for forgiveness of sin, but you lack the assurance of knowing that God will make good on His promise to you. I believe it's important that we grow in our understanding of the Word of God, not in our understanding of how we feel. I believe it's important that we stand on the truth of God's Word because having saving faith mixed with doubt and fear is spiritually unhealthy. Let me say that again. Having saving faith being mixed with doubts and fears and going through your life like that will make you a spiritually toxic Christian. You know already that there are some common household cleaners you have in your cabinets right now that you don't mix with the other, right? I mean, you don't mix bleach with what? Ammonia. I mean, you go mixing bleach with ammonia and and you could die. It creates a toxic fume, doesn't it? It's just a bad combination. Vinegar, too, has become a real popular cleaner. A lot of people didn't realize how much vinegar could clean. But if you go and you mix cleaner, which is a type of vinegar, which is a type of acid, and you mix that with a cleaner having bleach in it, you're going to create toxic fumes. And it just doesn't make for a good mix. Saving faith mixed with doubt and fear that you can lose your salvation, I believe is a dangerous combination that often leads to a works-centered faith. In other words, i just got to try harder to make sure that I'm saved. I've got to overcome my doubt and my fear by working harder. Oh, there's a service opportunity in the church. I've got to take that one. Because I haven't been working a whole lot lately in the church. I've got to take that one. But it's toxic for you to be saved, but still have doubt and fear that God will not make good on His promise to you. A work-centered faith often results in legalism. Legalism is the keeping of rules and regulations as a means for obtaining and maintaining righteousness. God wants us to grow beyond that point. God wants us to grow beyond just having saving faith to having a faith 
that is assured, a faith that is growing in the Word and can stand on His promise. He wants us to have a trusting and confident faith. So we know that Abram, like many of us, he had a problem. God made a promise to him, just like God has made promises to us through Christ. Now God gives him proof. God gave Abram proof. And look at verses 8 through 11. He has Abram take some animals, and he's going to sacrifice those animals for the purpose of making a covenant. But Jonathan and David became good friends and they made a blood covenant together. And we talked about that and how David followed through with his covenant by blessing the house of Saul, the house of Jonathan, in that he brought Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth, to the palace to live out the rest of his days. Mephibosheth, he didn't deserve that. It was a promise that David made to Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. And so David kept his promise because of the covenant they had made. And what grace was extended to Mephibosheth that he would live out his days like a child of the king. And so we knew about that. We saw that illustrated. But now we're backing up to Abram and God. And God is establishing a covenant with him. This word covenant or the the verb to make a covenant, it comes from the Hebrew word Karat, K-A-R-A-T. We get our word carrot from that. It means to cut, to cut like a diamond. And we can see just how serious God is about a blood covenant in the Scripture in this. When He makes a blood covenant, it involves the taking of life. That's pretty serious. He made a covenant sealed with blood. That means it involved taking life. And so Abram has to prepare this. And so he would take these animals, he would have to slit their throats, he would drain their blood. It sounds bloody and it sounds gruesome, but I'm telling you, there's a reason we have a cross in our churches today, amen? The cross is a bloody thing. The cross, what happened there on the cross was horrible in one sense, but victorious in the other. So we don't be ashamed of the cross. Paul said, I'm not ashamed. We shouldn't be ashamed, should we? But he is preparing this sacrifice and he takes these animals just like God instructed him and he cuts them in two and he lays them on the ground in two parallel rows, these carcasses. He lays them along there just as God has said. He leaves a path between there. He's going to walk a path because when a covenant was was made between two parties and they came to an agreement on a covenant, they're going to seal this promise together. They would walk the path in between the the body parts of these sacrificial animals, and they would both state the oaths and the stipulations of the covenant together. That's them stating it. So there's no, there's no uh, disagreement on what we're saying here, what we're promising here. We're doing this together. So these representatives would pace back and forth in between the animal parts as they would make this covenant. Now I want you to read verses 12 through 17 with me. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. 
But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. What was this horror? What was this great darkness that came down upon Abram? It's as the sun was getting dark, as the sky was growing dark, this greater darkness seemed to come down on him. This horror. Horror means something is terrible. Something is terrifying. And it's come down on Abram. Perhaps Job chapter 4 verse 13 and following. You can put that in your margin and check it out later in its entirety. But Job 4 Uh, Verse 13 provides us, I think, with a biblical explanation, perhaps, of what Abram might have been going through. You'll remember Job was being afflicted of the devil. Satan was coming against him. He was tempting him. He was literally destroying his life. But Job was standing his ground. Job was asking asking God questions. Why, God? I'm, I'm a righteous man. I'm a godly man. And so his friends, his three friends, kind of friends you really don't want, amen? (laughs) His three friends would come and say, well, you're just sinning. You've got sin in your life. Fess up, Job. You know, nothing's going to happen to somebody like this unless they're doing something wrong. You fess up. One of those men was Eliphaz. And Eliphaz has something happen to him because in the midst of some of this, God speaks to Eliphaz. And I want you to hear what he says about this in uh, this passage in Job chapter 4. Eliphaz says, In disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, in other words, deep into the night, when men go to sleep and they're heavy in their sleep, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face, The hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. And then he goes on to speak about what God had said to him. Abram has been experiencing a visitation from holy God here in Genesis 15. He's having a visitation from God this whole time, but for some reason at this moment... He is filled with horror as God begins to prove himself to Abram. I mean, God's been talking. God's been giving him this promise. But now all of a sudden, it's been, I I, I don't know how to explain it. It's been cranked up a notch. You know, the volume's turned up. The moment has been turned up. And something is fierce. Something is happening. It's terrible experience. It's a frightful experience for him. Perhaps God rendered him not just full of sleep at the time, but also helpless. Maybe he's seeing what's about to happen. He's seeing this vision of God's, or he has, he has this knowledge of God's presence right here before him, but he can do nothing. He cannot react. He can't respond. He's helpless, perhaps. Maybe God has done that to him, where he can't move and join God in the making of this covenant. The Bible says he sees a smoking pot. That's what it says in the New King James Version. A smoking oven or a smoking pot. The Hebrew word here used means it's a portable fire pot. So we don't want to think of some big cauldron or something. It's a portable pot, probably held in some way with a chain or on a 
stick or something, and it has a flame in it. And so you shouldn't read this and think there are two things, a torch in one hand and a portable, portable pot in the other. The pot contains the flame. And people would use that so they could see at night. And so he looks and he sees this smoking pot with a flame. He sees God passing back and forth, stating the covenant promises, just as two parties would normally do to seal a covenant. But here, Abram can't join God. He looks and he sees God passing between the carcasses alone. And that's because there's an oath. In this oath, it's an oath that only God can keep. Abram can't keep it. This promise is something only God can do. And God is binding Himself to His promise. Hebrews chapter 6 gives us some enlightenment here. Hebrews 6, beginning with verse 13, the Bible says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. That's what God said. So here we are now, we've jumped over in the New Testament, and they're confirming what God did in the Old Testament. Have you ever gotten a job because your dad? Because your mom? Sometimes you do, don't you? Oh, I know you. I know you. You're Bill Bradshaw's boy. I had him in eighth grade math. I can't tell you how many times I heard that in my life. I had him in eighth grade math. There were people. Uh, Pastor, uh, was his name, Ewing, over at Bethel Baptist. His wife had my dad. I didn't, I didn't know that. I don't know her. I just know through Facebook. She said he was my favorite teacher. You know, sometimes we get places because people know who we are. Because of other people. God doesn't have anybody else to swear by. His word is His word. No one else can beat His truth. No one else is more truthful. No one else is more holy. No one else is more pure. He could only swear by His own name. So when He makes this promise to Abraham, Abraham, called Abram at the time, he can't join in with God to seal this covenant He has nothing to add to this agreement. He can't. He's a man. And man will always fall short of God's glory. Boy, that's a great time for an amen. We will always fall short of God's glory. Abram proves that in the very next chapter. If you go to chapter 16, his wife has this big idea. Might as well just go and sleep with the maid. She'll give us a son. So guess what Abram does? He goes and he sleeps with a maid. She gives him a son. Man will always fall short of God's glory. Man always likes to take matters into his own hands by trying to secure something by other means. And as sinners, you and I are incapable of keeping a covenant with God such as this. God made His promised to us based on His own character and based on His own nature and the uh, the power of His own name. And so what He promises to us, we can't earn. He extends it as a gift to us. It cannot be earned because it's not based on our merit. We can't stand on our own merit. As a free gift, it is called grace. Everybody say grace. It's grace. And all we must do is believe on Jesus. 
Now I want you to see Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 begins to make good sense. We're going to look at a couple of verses here. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there if this doesn't come up on the screen especially. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Did you hear that, church? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. You can't add anything to this this picture. You can't add. You have nothing to bring to inherit God's promise. Just your faith. And then it comes by grace. It's not of works so that no one can boast. And then when we trust God by faith for salvation, we have a promise found in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Oh man, this just kind of cinches it up, you know. Like a fisherman goes and he, he throws out the net and he brings it in and he cinches them inside. Let's don't lose any. <laughs> Let's don't lose any. This kind of cinches the net. When we trust God by faith for salvation, we have this promise in Galatians 3.29 where Paul says this, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heirs according to what promise? The promise God made way back then that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ who became our sacrifice on the cross of Calvary so that we might be saved. And it's the promise of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Salvation is fulfilled in Jesus, Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. No one else, nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. And if we're in Christ, then we are Abraham's seed. What God promised Abraham was to be the father of many nations. Many descendants would come from him. We're descendants of Abraham Spiritually, we're descendants. We're his descendants, the Bible says. God proved himself to Abraham. But what about me? Maybe that's what you're thinking. He proved himself to Abraham, but what about me? I mean, we're in the here and now, not in the way back then. Pastor, come on, get with it. When's God going to prove himself to me? He already has. He has. Romans 5.8 says, For God proved His love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, say it with me, Christ died for us. He proved it. Another translation says, He demonstrated His love. How do you prove something? You just demonstrate it. I mean, if you can do it, that's enough. You can do it. He did it. He proved it. He demonstrated it. That Christ died while we were still sinners. He died for us. and showed us the love of God. All God's doing for Abram, He's showing him His love. He's making a promise. And He's establishing a relationship with Him through a covenant. The moment you received Jesus by faith, you became an heir of Abraham and all the promises of God, including the promise of eternal life. The Bible tells us so. I want to give you a verse of assurance. You can jot this down. I'm just going to read it to you. Or you can turn to 1 John chapter 5. And there are a number of them. But 1 John, 1 John toward the, the end of the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 9 through 13, spells it out so clearly, I believe. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. In other words, if you can believe what man says, 
Well, the Word of God is greater. The Word of God is more trustworthy than man's Word. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which He has testified of His Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in Himself. He who does not believe God has made him to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given us his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Now listen to this. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And then he throws it, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. How many times do we come to a a thought about something? I don't know if I need to keep believing this or not. I don't know if this is true. I don't know. You know, you read so much stuff on Facebook. You know, how many times Hobby Lobby closing their doors? You know, and then you turn around, oh, it was just false news. You know, they're not closing their door. How much, should I really believe that article? Should I really believe what's said there? He said, look, this life is in his son. You have the witness of the Holy Spirit in yourself. He will confirm to you that you belong to him. The only way that you came to him for salvation to begin with was that you sensed him moving on your heart, drawing you to be saved, and you made the commitment to trust in the Lord for salvation, and you gave your heart and life to him. You didn't just walk into church one day and say, hey, everybody else is doing it. I guess I will too. Well, let me take that back. <laughs> A lot of us did that when we were little, didn't we? But Then there came another time in our life where we sensed God saying, I'm drawing you. I want to save you. Your life needs to be changed. I'm the changer. I'm the chain breaker. Amen. Like the song says, I'm the chain breaker. I'll set you free. Give me your life. You need to be saved. We have verses of assurance. And if you struggle with assurance of salvation, and you believe with all your heart, you've trusted Jesus by faith, you need to read 1 John chapter 5, verse 9 through 13 when you get up and when you go to bed. One grandma had never flown on an airplane. She had to make a trip. And she had to fly in order to get there. Well, all of her kids and grandkids were trying to encourage her. You know, it's not that bad. And they would say, really? Grandma, uh, riding in a plane is safer than traveling in a car. And finally, she got on board the plane. She made the trip. And when she returned home, they all met her at the airport, her first trip ever. They met her. They said, well, how'd it go, Granny? How was the trip? How'd you like flying? Did the plane hold you up? One of the grandkids said. Did the plane hold you up? And she said reluctantly, yes, but I made sure I didn't put all my weight down on it. Could your faith in Jesus Christ to save you be like that? You believed in Him, but you're keeping one foot in your good works to go to heaven, and you've got another foot trying to trust and believe fully and solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got a foot solid over here, but every now and then this one wanders into the pit of doubt. And you begin to struggle. You begin to ask questions. Saving faith puts all its weight on Jesus Christ and His shed blood. That's how you were saved. Don't return back to doubt. You stood on the one who saved you. You're still saved. Amen? 
You're rooted in God's grace and it rests on His promise. You did nothing to earn your salvation. Don't come up with a plan in order to keep it other than this, that I will trust in Christ alone. I will trust in the cross alone. I want you to remember this statement. Saved by grace, assured by the Word. I'm not assured by my feelings. I'm not assured by what I think on the matter. I am saved by grace. When I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I became saved by grace. I received the free gift of salvation based on His promise in the Word. I am saved by grace. I'm assured by the Word. Would you say that with me? Saved by grace, assured by the Word. Let's say it again. Saved by grace, assured by the Word. Keep the promises of God. He's going to keep them.